Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined this week by Tobias Wright and Matt Cummings. All right, tonight we've got a brand new pick for Opera Box Score's All-American Hall of Fame. What composer am I conducting to these hallowed halls? I'll tell you that later. First, we're talking millennials. How do these kids feel about opera? How can we get them to come? Wait, aren't millennials, like, old now? Uh, Plus, in the two-minute drill, a fond farewell to a brilliant American baritone, and you get our hot takes on everything you need to know from the past week in opera land. And, of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera stories. That's 847-866-9687. Or tweet us at Opera Box Score. Post on our Facebook page. And before we get started here, I do want to give a shout Shout out to David in New York. Thank you so much for your donation. If you want to join David in his uh, cause, you can donate to at operaboxscore.com slash donate. And without further ado, Tobias Wright, how's it going? It's going well. I'm here. It's a Monday. It's beautiful. <laughs> and speaking of being here uh, on a Monday, uh, Matt Cummings is also here on a Monday. It's a big twist, too, because I didn't know that I could be here until about... 80 minutes ago. Yeah, so. th- that's the kind of dedication you can expect. That's where your donation is uh, going, David. <laughs> Just to get uh, uh, Matt out of rehearsal. Um, so uh, who's got some sports news for me? Because I have nothing. Well... well- I thought we were just going to talk about, like, avocado toast and Instagram. <laughs> what happened in the sports? It's the most boring sports week of the year, actually. Yeah, I It's mean, before football. It's, like, the week after All-Star break in baseball, so, like, boring snooze fest. Uh, NBA free agency's over. Wimbledon happened, so somewhere, like, Oliver's having a wet dream about it. But, like, we can't. Like, I have no insight to that. So, I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> but a Williams sister didn't win. So, they, there's, that is, there's, there's oh, the that news. Is, that is, that the, is pretty. And uh, can you tell us who won? No. Because it's not a Williams sister. <laughs> yeah. No shade on the, on we'll, the winner. We'll but. ask Oliver next week when he comes in. All right, let's talk some millennials and opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That's what you're listening to. We're talking about an article from Vogue which asks the question, will millennials kill opera? We at Opera Box Score certainly hope not, especially as we are all millennials here ourselves since we got rid of uh, Oliver Camacho. That's actually why he's not here. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, so uh, Toby, take us through the article a little bit. Well, okay. So it's not a new hot take, but it is (laughs) another hot take, shall we say. Uh, we have two articles that we're going to be touching off of. The first one, though, is is our focal point from Vogue. Um, and I'm just going to read a quick excerpt from it. Sure. Um, it says, It follows, then, that millennials might kill it, it being opera. Uh, we're not known for our attention spans, our patience, or our respect for tradition. And we've been subsequently accused of killing avocado, cheese, homeownership, <laughs> marriage, and the retail industry. <laughs> Behind these allegations is, of course, the world's deeply troubled economy, which has effectively made it unlikely that most of us will be able to afford what our parents could. For opera, which has an elitist reputation, though, as with my own experience, it's not always the case. And opera was historically a populist art form, too. If we kill it, it will likely be because we simply don't have the means to go. So... That's kind of the gist of it. One other thing, my main takeaway yeah. was, and, and I actually agreed with it. That whole introduction is probably, mm, eh, I don't really agree with that. But one <laughs> well, you thing, haven't killed any avocado toast lately? No, I, I've honestly never had avocado toast. <laughs> it's delicious, but we can circle back to that later. Okay, we'll come back to that, but I've never done that because 
<laughs> um, <laughs> one thing that it did say, though, was, and I believe this to be true, it's, it does say that opera asks its, its attendees to do some heavy lifting. And I believe that sure. the issue millennials have is trifold. Um, and in regards to that heavy lifting, let's focus on this. It does ask you to engage and educate yourself prior to walking into the theater. And I can't tell how many times I've talked to people in my own life who are like, oh, I would love to go to an opera, but I just don't think that I'd get it. And sure. my retort to that is, would you ever read a book that you had no idea what it was about without reading the back cover? Would you ever go to a movie without knowing, knowing who was starring in it, knowing who was producing it, knowing who wrote it? Or would you ever watch a TV show without knowing what streaming platform it on, is, it, it's on? And the answer, I think, universally is no. You would take the time. You would have an interest because you are about to invest your time in it. And so I'm always curious. Like Millennials aren't going to kill opera, but people... There are so many millennials who say, I, don't, I, I won't be able to get it. Well, just take a second. Educate yourself on it. If you have an interest in an art form, take a moment to understand that there's so much to learn and take in. You can't just walk in and expect to be like, oh, I got it, to anything. Literally anything. You take the time to educate yourself. You know what a basketball game is. You know what a movie is. And so read a synopsis. Do a Google, a quick Google search. Yeah, on millennials were raised on Google. <laughs> right. And, and, and the same thing is true. When you go out to eat, what do you do? I look at Yelp, I look at their website, and I look at the and internet. And you check the Google reviews, yes. and you check the Grubhub, yes. and you see how many people rated it. And, and that's for a burger. Yeah. Like, of course I'm not going to go to an opera and be like, I didn't get it. Well, don't be an idiot. Take the time <laughs> to just take the time. And that's so, I don't know, I'm ranting a little bit. But well, like, I, I, even, even operas that I'm, sorry, Matt, uh, even operas that I am familiar with, I still reread a synopsis and that allows you to not have to focus on the on uh, super titles it allows you to listen to the music and understand the drama as it unfolds musically okay rant over sorry and i think that we sort of do ourselves a disservice in terms of like uh, we as music lovers tend to dumb down our recommendations to people Mm -hmm. and we always tell people the same list of five or six operas that we think are great starter operas right and i really think and i'm sure weston you agree with that given what your tastes are oh but (laughs) absolutely uh, not everyone is going to connect to a mozart opera because they're very they can be very stylized right and they are long and they're convoluted and they're beautiful and like tonally very easy to listen to but in terms of a whole evening people who were raised on kubrick movies might have an easier time following zalame or electra yeah yeah i i i i I absolutely agree this is one of the points that uh, i sort of had contention with in the article and of course as i was reading the article i I was very much uh struck with i mean this this is this article from vogue is not uh a particularly original article as we said before it's it's a lot of recycled from the the media hot take machine trying to slam millennials down into their places (laughs) but it's certainly something that is in the atmosphere it is reflecting uh, a crisis that a lot of opera companies and people are having uh so i was kind of sitting there sort of wondering uh well what would i do that hasn't been sort of the norm in order to get these uh these crazy uh 35 year old kids into my opera house uh and um the the thing that i come up with uh, kind of to your point matt um i well, for first a little bit, I know I've told this story before, but uh, when I was in college, I had a, a opera radio show because you know I got everything have... <laughs> led you here. <laughs> everything yeah. led me right here, where I am right now, this very seat. Uh, and uh, I, uh, one of the things I did was I had. Um, uh, I had a, a Facebook uh, open uh, to engage with all my fans and uh, friends and family, and uh, 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 I had actually had a fairly large listenership uh, on a sort of a Facebook Quit fan bragging. page. Oh, you brag. Um, do, we, do we have to drink now? And <laughs> yeah, I think we do. <laughs> and my uh, uh, the most uh, interacted with the, the 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 ones that got the most sort of buzz as they were playing the the the, the arias and pieces that had the most uh, uh, the most buzz were not Puccini. They were not Mozart. They were not Verdi, even. Um, I think the top two was the uh, prelude to um, Fruccio Busoni's Dr. Faust, which, when was the last time you heard that one? And, 1934. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the, uh, the other one was sort of the uh, finale to uh, Die Frau ohne Schatten, which is by Richard Strauss, but it's also... Uh, it's pretty weird, Strauss. It, it, it's one of like the lesser... Uh, it's, it's pretty out there. <laughs> of his major operas, it's probably his least well-known. 
Um, but these were the ones that got people uh, commenting to me like, oh, this is amazing. Can, I, I want to hear more of this. And like I had, I had to like loan out my CDs afterwards uh, in order to, uh, to uh, get some of the people on campus listening to it. The, and the, what, I, what I would love to see is regional companies doing more specific research into what people are willing to listen so to. So your argument isn't that it's a millennial problem. Right. It's a... It's a perception problem. Exactly. Okay. There okay. needs to be some sort of interaction with the community to determine uh, not only why they aren't coming or what they need to help them come, but also what they will engage with. Because opera as an art form is not something that you just, well, sometimes it is. Sometimes you do just want to let uh, sit down and let Puccini wash over you. But it's also because it's an art form that demands a higher level of listening uh, and engagement than perhaps your average uh, piece of art. It, it is something that you want to give them something to latch onto. I would love community, uh, opera companies to go into communities and do surveys, interact with people, uh, and to, in order to get a sense of what they need and what they want from that particular and region. And I think a lot of opera companies are adventuring into their communities more and more. Right. Um, and I think a lot of that, I think that there, uh, there's a multitude of reasons. One is to educate. Uh, and, Absolutely. And it is to show people that this is an open art form, that this is an approachable art form. And then I think the back end of that is to cultivate a return on that investment with the audience members. But you're not going to go do an outreach program and expect, like, from that outreach program, oh, great, 500 new subscribers. Like, it doesn't work <laughs> that way, right? right? And so to your point, I think that's really, I think you're, you're correct. And I think a lot of people are aware of that, that there's a branding issue at least amongst millennials. And, you know, we think of our economy today. <clears throat> and by all accounts, the economy is doing very well. Sure. Um, and unemployment's at all-time low. And I know that there are certain economic jobs or economic uh, areas that really struggle to get people to want to be in them um, because there's a branding issue. And it's like the same thing with opera. Many people don't want to go because, oh, I won't get it. Well, it's a branding issue. We All we got to do is show you. It's it's that. You have to say, like, it's totally cool to not get it, but it's also totally cool to learn about it. And I think that part of what will, he what will help opera is by looking at more of, more of the traits of the millennial generation than just these stereotypes that get written about. <laughs> sure. <laughs> people always talk about us about having short attention spans and being entitled and not wanting to work for things. And that just, a lot of those don't, not only don't gel with my experiences, but they're, they're, they can be downplaying strengths of the millennial generation. I think millennials a lot of times look for nuance, look for complexity. Right. Look, they, they want to be challenged. They want things that will challenge the status quo. And, you know, any generalizations are, 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 are going to be weakened by 900 counterexamples. But if you look at the, the way that TV has developed since the 80s and 90s, and, I mean, and comedy has gotten more sophisticated there are many, many shows uh, that, that are highly acclaimed on popular dramas that the whole show is subtext and right. no one is ever saying what they're thinking. I'm thinking of like the Americans and Mad Men, all of these shows that are so subtle and uh, uh, not, not uh, subtle and, and long artistic form. <laughs> and long form and slow burns. You know, that's the kind of thing that really ties into opera better than you would think if you're willing to like take one more hop down your hopscotch uh, of, of media <laughs> hot takes. I, I, I did when one I was, more hop down your hopscotch. Don't I, don't at me with your mixed <laughs> metaphors. <laughs> one of the things that another thing that sort of did strike me. Um, uh, I I, I kind of find that uh, millennials, younger people, tend to be a little bit more receptive to the idea of opera. I think than uh, um, than you know Gen Xers and even baby boomers. You know, uh, I, I think a lot of that. Uh, is because uh, there there has been so much change and so much more Googleability, um, as we talked about before. It, it is very easy now to find out to, to have some idea of what you're getting into, um, and you don't have quite as much uh, cultural resistance against it uh, against trying something new if you're able to go out and uh, and see what it's all about without having to actually necessarily go first. And, and people talk about millennials. I, I, some of this is my soapbox about media. <laughs> so wait, 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 before you say this, who are the opera goers now that have supported it forever? I, it's, I, it, it's a handful of baby boomers and it's right. a handful. And it's also people from the silent generation, which was the one before baby boomers. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and, 
people are talking about millennials as though they're the only generation on earth right now and totally ignoring any <laughs> actions taken by the silent generation, by baby boomers, by Gen Xers. Like, all of these things interact. And what really goes to those interactions is, and I, one of the things that I think is going to be the biggest thing to overcome if you want millennials to go to the opera and to want to go to the opera is what intimidates people the most I would say are those besides unfamiliarity. Number two would be like the social trappings of it, not knowing what Absolutely. they should wear, thinking that it's fancy, feeling unwelcome. And even I, like I have really immersed myself in opera for the last decade of my life. I studied it at school more than once. <laughs> I have filled my computer hard drive with literally half a terabyte of opera recordings. <laughs> I'm on an opera podcast. I am like an <laughs> opera company's dream supporter if <laughs> You're i the can dream you know if i can like make enough money to 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 give back but like they should want to invest in me so that i can be an active patron right when i go to operas when i go to concerts the older the old guard patrons do absolutely nothing to go out of their way to make me feel welcome hmm. there's one concert at an arts organization in the very city of chicago that i was at with oliver camacho reviewing a concert for this podcast where the woman in front of us turned around and started making small talk, and the look on her face was like she had something dirty under her shoe, and she wanted to know like who these young upstarts were and why we deserved to be there mm -hmm. in the nice mm. seats. That kind of attitude is going to turn people away more than anything yeah. about the art form itself. Well, and that's that to your point there. Like, ugh, I I literally had this conversation last week with someone who's like, oh my god. I want to go. I want to go to the lyric. It's so the idea of getting dressed up and looking. To, I was like, but actually, and I just told her, I was like, actually, you could go in 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 jeans in and jeans a sweater and the sweater and be comfortable. Right. I mean, the whole point isn't to prove that you belong. The whole point is going to see if you feel like you can fall in love with an art form, rather right. than a societal expectation of who should be there. And you know, when I think about going to the lyric. Which and is, the lyric's just an example here. The lyric like, is just an example. It, well, it's just an example, uh, but it is also a huge example and one that we are privy to because we, it's here. So we are very lucky um, in that regard. But when I go to a show, you know, I think of the Gen Xers. That's not who I see in the crowd. Absolutely. It's either millennials or the silent generation. Yeah. There's a massive gap there. And I'm not one of those people who are like, Gen Xers messed it all up. My parents ruined it and bought a house without <laughs> college debt. Like, I don't feel that. I think, like, life is cyclical. Things happen. Like, whatever. Well, but I, I see a massive gap there. So there was a generation that wasn't breeding opera lovers. Absolutely. And now we have a massive gap that opera companies are trying to make up. And so to say that millennials are going to ruin that... I just, by and large, don't believe that to be true. Where, in all. fact, it's best hope. Yeah. <laughs> that. <laughs> there it, this is, article there should have, it is. The article should have been, how can millennials save? How millennials are saving opera? We're still talking about it. Millennials are the ones that are driving these pop-up opera companies that are doing shows in catacombs, that are doing shows out of opera trucks in, or out of semi-trucks in Rome. That, Who are mixing opera and breakdancing, two things that really, yes. I honestly go together really well. Yeah. But like a friend of the show, Jakob Joseph Orlinski, yes. is, specializes in both of them. Or George with the Rossini Project, yeah. missing, uh, mixing house music, hip-hop, and taking it into venues and letting it be a live performance art where everyone is involved. So... Millennials aren't killing opera. They are finding ways to let it slip through the cracks of the patriarchy and live and thrive. And just like people who went to the opera in Handel's Day would have no idea what they were watching when the, if they went to a Wagner opera, that doesn't make either of those art forms less valid. Right. So to, uh, to pretend that by letting the art form evolve and take it where people have, may, not, may never have gone with it before, to communities who have never been able to experience it, to people who are trying to infuse their own personal experiences in it and make it, keep it relevant, keep it alive, that doesn't cheapen opera, it enriches it. It mm -hmm. enriches it. No. Yeah, and uh, it, it's one of those. It's one of those things where, uh, where when you do see uh, an article like this, um, you can kind of see where the seed of the idea, the worry, is. But at the same time, uh, you you look at the audiences, uh, and you as yourself, a, a millennial, <laughs> you know, walking in there is like. I always think, you know, whenever I start to, you know, really worry about opera's future, which happens sometimes, I, I like to remember that. Wait, wait a second, I'm a I'm a young person still, um, and 
I love opera and I can't picture a world without it. And if there's any other people who are like me, and this podcast is proof that there are, I think we're going to be fine. It's just a matter of uh, making sure that we're we stop catering to out of date systems that have prevented uh, prevent us from uh, sort of taking the mantle and continuing the tradition. And attitude is free. Attitude is free for those who drive arts organizations and who are in charge of artistic vision. And attitude has everything to do with what you believe you can do with who you can invite into your opera house who you can write into your space right attitude is free it doesn't have to be an elitist art form it also doesn't have to be i mean like it can be supported by the multitudes um and so i think that's you know we keep seeing these articles and i that's pretty defeatist it's it's too <laughs> simple of a thing it's the, e- it's the easy way it out. is the easy way out it's too high of an overview to even for us really to give it the time, Vogue magazine. Yeah. So we on <laughs> maybe Upper Vogue shouldn't be so vague. <laughs> we on Upper Box Score are inviting you to join us in our millennial think piece clapback, <laughs> and let's use those, let's turn those into applause. Yeah, I want I want everyone who listens to this to uh, tweet this episode at Vogue and just uh, uh, see what happens. Clapping emoji between every word, or it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right, we got to move on. The first American composer is about to be inducted into the Opera Box Score Hall of Fame. Who will be next to receive the most prestigious award a very niche opera podcast can give? Find out next only on America's talk radio show about opera on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear-a-hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic yet humble Salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. Welcome back once again to the Opera Box Score Hall of Fame. And as you can tell by the music, if you are as big a fan of him as I am, we're inducting John Adams. (laughs) The president? The president. The president. The other president? (laughs) Uh, Certainly the more worthy of the other possibility uh, uh, inducting right now. Uh, Yes, uh, so John Adams, uh, this is what happens when Oliver and uh, George are gone. I get to induct whoever I want into the opera box score hall into fame. the hallowed halls <laughs> along the likes of Luciano Pavarotti, oh, Pavarotti. Shirley Verrett oh, Benjamin Britten oh, Leontine Price, Price. <laughs> the opera Salome <laughs> that's right that was the first one I did misunderstand the prompt initially but we, we got it we got it now so John Adams uh, a very very exciting day for me I'm literally like you know uh, quaking a little bit because I'm so excited Weston is not a small human he's a very tall <laughs> tall 
man. But he is like a little boy on Christmas. I'm so excited. So, John Adams, uh, if you don't know who he is, uh, he is a living American composer. Uh, he was born in 1947 in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, I think it's uh, Worcester, Worcester. Worcester. Worcester, yeah, it's Massachusetts. They never pronounce it right. Worcestershire. Worcestershire sauce. Wo- Worcester, uh, Massachusetts. Worcester. <laughs> That's where he was born. And the reason I want to talk about him so much is because uh, he was the first living opera composer uh I ever encountered. Um, I, I think I might have heard like little bits here and there of other composers. I might have heard like a, a bit of Philip Glass here and there, but never really connected. And I remember that when I was, um, oh, I couldn't have, I, probably middle school, uh, I was uh, going around and I encountered, um, I don't even think it was one of his operas. I think it was uh, probably uh, Harmony Lara or something like that. And I listened to it and I'm like, this isn't unlike anything I've ever heard before. Uh, it's, uh, and I, I got really excited, did lots of research, and I found that he was a living composer who was still writing operas, which in that time period for me was, was mind-blowing uh, that there were living composers that still wrote. I, I was like nominally aware of it, but I never like fully comprehended it. Right. Uh, because a, a lot of... A, a lot of I, I think this is a problem that I think a lot of... Uh, modern composers uh especially the last couple of decades of the 20th century ran into stupid millennials is that <laughs> is that they a lot of them were composing in sort of a uh you know throwbacky kind of style um i think the newest opera i'd ever heard uh, in my dad's cd collection was ballad of baby doe which hmm. is uh not modernist no it's got, it's got some great hits but it's famous because yeah. beverly sills like to sing exactly it. and that's why my dad had it um, but John Adams is something new, something I discovered. So in addition to it being uh, the first living uh, opera composer I had discovered, it was the first time I had really discovered something that my dad knew nothing about. Um, and uh, I, I just absolutely love it. So to give you a little bit of background, his, uh, he was born in four, uh, 47, so he was uh, uh, trained in sort of, you know, the serialist I- idiom like all, you know, composers in that era. And like many composers, he abandoned that uh, initially for uh, uh, an attempt at minimalism, so his early stuff is very influenced by Philip Glass and uh, and uh, Steve Reich. But don't let that dissuade you if you're not fans of those, because in, he very quickly sort of transcends them. Uh, he uh, artistically, he's he's not really polystylistic, but he has sort of an Ivesian quality to him mm-hmm. in that he he uses influences from all over the place, uh, particularly New England, which is uh, really holds up with the, uh, the the Ives comparison. His parents are both jazz musicians. He listens to rock music back before um, composers admitted to doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, uh, and. Uh, uh, and it's just very exciting. So one of his early sort of successes was a piece called Shaker Loops. Um, well, once again, the New England Connection there, uh, which premiered in 1978. Um, very minimalist, but there's a, there's a, a drama to it. If you ever listen to this piece, uh, I'm not going to play any of it because it's not an opera, um, but I highly recommend it because it has like this overarching sort of almost uh, dramatic quality to it. It evolves in a way that um, minimalist music at the time just did. Did not do, uh, and uh, it was at one of these performances that uh, uh, Peter Sellers, the opera director, was in the audience, and he and saw opera bad boy director opera. specifically. <laughs> he likes to do weird things. I'm pretty sure George is the uh, bad boy of opera directors, but um, uh, agree to disagree. Uh, but Peter Sellers um, uh, heard the piece, and he was like, "Now that is an opera composer." Uh, and he had to actually like, convince John Adams that that was the case initially. But then they eventually sort of co- collaborated and created their first opera together, uh, which premiered uh, in 1987. And that was, of course, Nixon in China, uh, which is just a delightful piece. Um, I agree. It, it's I, probably the masterpiece of the mid-20th century. I- exactly. Well, well, sort of la- last quarter, yeah. yeah, I would say. Let's just listen to just a little bit of um, probably the most famous aria. Uh, this is from the uh, the original recording. This is James Maddalena, the, uh, the original Nixon singing um, uh, uh, news has a kind of mystery. Thanks. 
As you can hear in that clip, there is a lot of the minimalist influence. You've got the minimalist pulse going on. You've got repetition of words and phrases. Um, but there's something a little different about it. There's something human about it compared to like Glass or Steve right. Reich. Mm-hmm. It's got this drive to it. It's got this humor. Uh, obviously, there's some humor in the text. Uh, as he says, listening, he starts repeating uh, listening as the as uh, Zhou and Lai, who he's uh, supposed to be talking to, he's not listening to him. Uh, you know, and th- this is actually a pretty funny opera. There's lots of really good jokes in it. Um, uh, and not just uh, in the libretto, which is by Alice Goodman, but uh, in the music. This is one of the first uh, really notable examples of what separates John Adams from many of the minimalists in his early works, what he calls the trickster, which is a little rhythmic uh, and often tonal interruption in that pulse, uh, in the uh, normal pulse of the piece. And it's, you hear it a lot it, in the trumpets. Which creates especially. a sense of urgency mixed with the humanity. Right. Often in his early pieces, uh, it, it literally is a trickster. It literally is a joke, um, uh, sort of throwing everything off. Later on in, the, in uh, that particular ar- aria, um, he's, he's, he sings, the nation's heartland skips a beat, and the orchestra skips a beat. And it, it's great. It's a, it's a, it's a great piece. Um, but this is something that was very, very, very new uh, and very different from what you would uh, have expected in opera houses of this time. So if you, t- if you go back in time to 1987... Uh, Opera in America, especially new opera, is kind of in crisis um, because uh, this is sort of the heyday of the sort of 70s and 80s catering only to uh, uh, often the very rich, or at least that was the perception in a lot of the large houses, um, doing very conservative programming, even more conservative than we have nowadays in a lot of these same places. Um, It's a lot of old war horses over and over and over again. New operas. Which leads me to believe that there's always been a crisis about new audiences oh, possibly the, the list of thing the list of th- this the list of things that has been uh claimed to kill music goes all the way back <laughs> to like the printing press yeah but sorry but yeah I, there's th- there's sort of like no heir apparent to the samuel barber and even the exactly. giancarlo minotti who's like controversial in his own right but they were you know they were pushing the envelope forward they weren't just doing they weren't just doing the same thing over and over again mm-hmm. well you kind of have a sort of a weird situation where the the opera going public was listening to these hyper conservative pieces all of the new operas being written were either in sort of a neo-romantic sort of dull idiom um or or they were being imported from europe in the hyper serialist mode and no one wanted to listen to that and then in the middle you have uh philip glass's early operas which while very interesting are not everyone's cup of tea Mm-hmm. Uh, so Nixon, there was China, no there was no apparent international composer in America from America. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So enter Nixon in China, and here you have uh, an unapologetically dramatic, funny piece that is not re- rehashing neo-romanticism, old things that have been done. He's not trying to be Puccini um, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, but he's also not trying to be this European heady uh, avant-garde, and he's not trying to be Philip Glass with his weird things. Everything is serving the story. Everything is serving um, the humor in, in the text, and, the, uh, and it's a very relevant sort of up-to-the-minute kind of uh, story, because this is, you know, this is 19. 19- Nixon's first visit to China is in living memory for most of your audience. Mm, yeah. um, uh, and and it's, uh, it's one of those things where it feels very fresh, feels very relevant, but it's entertaining, it's fun, it's doing something new, it's doing everything opera should be doing. And it's still incredibly technically difficult and virtuosic music to Absolutely. sing. Absolutely. Madame Mao's aria from, oh, from Nixon in China is famous for being one of the most techli- technically demanding pieces for a coloratura soprano you and need just to, a nightmare. I recommend to all of our listeners... If you search Kathleen Kim singing uh, 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 I Am the Wife of Mao Zedong on YouTube, it's right there, and she it is there's it one, there's one from a young singer on YouTube that who where the time of the video is a full two minutes shorter than every other video because she takes her <laughs> so fast. Oh, and I'm going to send it to Weston so that he can oh, put it up on the website because it is do. just incredible. It's yes. one of the most well, amazing the, things I've ever heard. One of the other things, too, that I think is really important to 
acknowledge about everything you're just saying is that we were kind of in this period where it was all the old war horses, conservative programming, and Nixon in China did kind of pay homage to that. It right. is American grand opera. Absolutely. There is nothing small about it. The staging has to be dramatic. There's so, it's Isn't such there a, a helicopter called no, for? It's, there's it's, Air Force it's the One. Air Force yeah. One, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's literally, I mean, if you've, and that's pretty iconic. It, it makes it makes live recordings uh, unlistenable because everyone always applauds when uh, Air <laughs> Force One comes down. <laughs> no, but like that to me, you could show me that, a screenshot of that, and I'm like, Nixon in China, and you could show me like the Triumphal March from Aida, and I'm like, Aida. It's exactly. That, it's that iconic in, in its grandiose nature of what it was supposed to be and what it represented, and I think that was really brilliant. Brilliant yeah. on his part to, to say, well, if I'm going to do this and create this thing that was for all these people who are alive, it had to be relatable in that aspect as well, visually. Right. And I mean, what a stroke of genius. It, it's so good. Uh, I, I, if you haven't seen Nixon in China, what are you doing? Go see it. Uh, go make your uh, local opera company play it. Uh, the, <laughs> the next Coming opera, to Toledo. All that. <laughs> <laughs> the next opera by John Adams is probably the most unusual, and it's also the one that people sometimes... Uh, have trouble with for various reasons. If you might know about it just from the controversies. Yes, you might. Um, uh, this is the opera The Death of Klinghoffer. Uh, and uh, I think most recent, well, maybe not most recently, but recently in the news, this was the opera that um, was originally going to be a broadcast live in HD from the Metropolitan Opera, um, what, about like three seasons ago? Uh, 2014. 2014. 2014. Yeah. Uh, oh, man, time flies. I know. Oh, geez. I remember learning that it was... Can- canceled right whilst on a bus to go watch a northwestern football game <laughs> right uh, it's it, little did i know i'd be talking about it today here. i I, oh. I remembered it too because i was that was one of the ones i was like you know obviously at this point i was a big adam's head as we're called probably uh and uh <laughs> and uh, as I, we're uh, called now i i heard the news and i was like oh oh man news. oh no <laughs> i get it that's good um, but uh, but the reason um, it uh, it was no longer allowed to be played uh, was uh, because of pressure from the Anti Defamation League. Because this opera is often uh, accused of anti Semitism uh, because it it deals with um, a very specific incident. This is the hijacking of a, uh, a passenger liner um, um, by uh, Palestinian terrorists uh, who uh, killed uh, a man named Leon Klinghoffer, who was uh, Jewish. And one of the things that Peter Sellers, John Adams, and um, Alice Goodman wanted to get across was sort of this idea that uh, both the Palestinians and Israelis had some sort of uh, claim to their homeland and, and this, a similar sort of sense of being forced out. Uh, and to many people, that came across as a sympathetic uh, portrayal of terrorists, which people were not a fan of. <laughs> and a minimalizing of a brutal murder. Right. And I think that... that uh, I think that uh, a lot of the controversy surrounding, uh, you know, intention of... Uh, of uh, well, I, I should say that this is not just uh, uh, um, criticism from um, Jewish groups. This, this is also from Palestinian groups. Palestinian groups also have uh, uh, kept this production from being played at various points in time. Um, a lot of that, I think, is a little bit over-exaggerated. However, I do think that using a living person, um, well, uh, in this case, a recently deceased person, uh, Leon Klinghoffer, as a subject to the opera, it was a mistake, and it was something that uh, John Adams has never done again, uh, really, um, because the the the, uh, the Klinghoffer daughters came to see the show when it premiered, uh, um, and um, they came out publicly and said they just absolutely hated it. And th- that's something that I feel like if I wrote something, I was like, well, maybe we did mess up something. Mm. Um, however, musically speaking, it's a fascinating piece. It's 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 uh, John Adams, I think, his weirdest uh, opera. It's very synth-heavy. It's very experimental, a lot of harsh sounds. There's also sort of the beginning of his sort of uh, putting in sort of oratorio-like choruses. And we're just going to hear a little bit of uh, the night chorus uh, from Death of Klinghoffer. It's very scary.
And that is uh, just a little selection there of uh, Death of Klinghoffer. And unfortunately, we're running low on time because I could just talk about John Adams all day long. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of his comeback. After the controversy of Death of Klinghoffer, wherever you uh, fall in that spectrum of, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> of liking it or hating it, for whatever reason, um, it, it, uh, it ended up sort of ending Alice Goodman's career. Um, and uh, But Peter Sellers and John Adams eventually came back together um, uh, in 2005, I believe, to uh, create uh, Dr. Atomic, which is one of my favorites. This one, uh, this one, you can see a lot of the mistakes of Klinghoffer being avoided, uh, and as well as a sort of a, um, uh, an extension of, of Adams stylistically into a much more melodic, uh, romantic sort of medium, while still retaining everything that makes it John Adams-y. Uh, it's, uh, it, uh, this one is set in a, um, around the creation of the atomic bomb uh, the, for the Manhattan Project, uh, and uh, we're just going to hear just a little bit of um, uh, Robert Oppenheimer quoting poetry uh, as he contemplates um, uh, the, uh, what he's created. That's just one of the most sort of haunting moments. And you see a combination of uh, electronics, um, uh, really sort of slower sounds. The pulse is not, is there, but it's slow. It's dramatic. It's, 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 it's a truly extraordinary opera and one that didn't, I think, get a lot of respect when it initially came out due to a lot of subpar productions kind of right off the bat. But there's a studio recording of this with Gerald Finley, uh, which is what this uh, recording is from. And it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And one of the exciting things about John Adams being a living composer is that he's still doing new stuff. He's still trying new things, and his style is still developing. So we're just going to uh, go into the break here with just a little bit from his uh, sort of opera oratorio, more oratorio than opera, uh, The Gospel According to the Other Mary. And this is when um, the, uh, um, the biblical character of Lazarus has been uh, resurrected, and he sort of has a little freak out being back in the world of the living. And it's, it's just such a great aria. From Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill. Plus, our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer 
Gregory Spears, Intendantin Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. Friend of the show, Lucia Lucas, was profiled in the New York Times last week in a story highlighting a number of transgender opera singers and how their transition has affected their careers. A link to that article is on our website. And while you're there, you can check out our interview with Lucia Lucas on our website. Sorry, New York Times, we got her first. Menzi Mengoma, a South African Uber driver, has gone viral for his performance of La Donna Immobile, among other things, from the front seat of his vehicle. Uh, says uh, Mengoma, I, quote, I'm so excited with everything that's happening in my life right now, all the gigs I'm getting, people who recognize me, wanting to take photos with me. I feel special seeing my face on, c- on TV and in newspapers, as well as doing interviews on radio. <clears throat> Andre Previn and Tom Stoppard's opera Penelope will receive its world premiere at Tanglewood next week. The opera, which was left unfinished after Previn's death earlier this year, will star Renee Fleming, to whom the work is dedicated, and a new addition to the cast, actress Uma Thurman, who will be taking on the part of the narrator. The Houston Grand Opera has won a Telly Award for its web series opera production of Starcrossed, that's Starcrossed with an apostrophe instead of an ED, uh, by composer Avner Dorman and librettist Stephen Fleischmann. We are honored to be recognized with a, t- a Telly Award for our inaugural Starcrossed web production, Boundless. Carlene Graham, director of uh, uh, Houston Grand Opera, uh, c- uh, co noted in a press release. It was truly a team effort involving creative and visionary people to make this uh, true story from a local. Houstonian and transform it into an opera. On the disabled list, Jonas Kaufmann pulled out of the Bavarian State Opera's production of Verdi's Otello last night. He has an infection, they say. His replacement will be Zoran Todorovic. The Bayreuth Festival has tweeted that the mezzo Ekaterina Gubanova was injured in a stage rehearsal and will miss the opening night of Wagner's Tannhäuser. Her replacement is Elena Zidkova, who first sang at Bayreuth in 2001. The conductor is Valery Gergiev, making his Bayreuth debut. Exit stage right, Robert Orth, uh, the death, uh, he's the the baritone Robert Orth, rather. Uh, the death has been reported, uh, a committed singer of uh, new operas by American composers. The baritone has been noted in a number of roles, including Nixon in China. Uh, aside from Nixon in China, his most prominent title role, uh, he created the role of Harvey Milk and sang in the world premiere of Dead Man Walking, Brief Encounter, and The Grapes of Wrath. And on this day, July 15th, Paul Hindemith's Hin and Suruk premiered in 1927, Kurt Weill's Down in the Valley premiered in 1948, and David Blake's Icarus premiered in 2016. And that is your two-minute drill. And that's how you become viral. <laughs> so many of those like viral opera fans are people with professional opera degrees who just were discovered while they were at their day job. And what is really cool about this guy is that he not only is self-taught, right. but like self-taught really well. Yeah. Like, yeah. He's got style. Well, Cause like you and, think of like Britain's got talent. Yeah, like there Paul is Paul Potts, Potts and, and like yeah. that dude, like one off learned an aria. Whereas <laughs> like this guy can sing. Yeah. And like, I actually did a little bit more digging into it. I mean, he's got recordings out there. there. He's got a great tone. Yeah. His diction for someone who is self-taught is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, to my he's got a wonderful ear. ear I yeah. Think, is yeah. What, and like there is, Yeah. He can actually sing. I thought that was fantastic. And I hope he gets everything that he deserves because nobody gets lucky. They just are prepared when opportunity arises. And so I hope that this discovery is a long and fruitful one. And this really validates my habit of singing in the car wherever I go. Hell yeah. (laughs) I ever tell you guys one time I was driving and I was singing um, Una Frativa. And I had my windows down. And I mean, it was like a hot summer day in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. And I was like blasting away singing it. And... Some guy pulled up to me at a stoplight and he goes, 
La Lizzie d'Amore. And I was like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> how did that guy know? Oh, I and love that's that. how you got your first Met contract. <laughs> no, that's how I was going on my way to work. Um, I am going to say something about Bob Orth. Please do. If I may. Please do. Absolutely. Um, so I was friends with Bob Orth and had performed with him before. And I am nothing that I say is unique because everyone felt this way. And I think it's such a testament to who he was as a man. But learning about Bob's sickness, he had been he had been fighting an illness for a while now and was placed into hospice care a few weeks ago and passed away. His family was by his side. But there was I can I can guarantee you that the thousands of people that he performed with are infinitely better because of who he was and how he treated them. Mm. And that is to a person. And that is I I can say that unequivocally without exception. Every single person who knew and performed with Bob Orth or even just ever merely was in his presence was in the presence of someone who made them feel better about who they were and the world at large. That is truly the profound impact that I believe Bob Orth had on not only the opera industry, but the world. He was one of the kindest, most gracious, most intelligent, funniest people I have ever had the privilege of working with like and and I had a lot less proximity to him than Toby did than when we when we were doing uh Grapes of Wrath with him in Northwestern but he made every single person in the chorus feel welcome feel known and that's just the kind of colleague he was and it's the kind of person he was in all aspects of his life I'm I'm confident I can say with absolutely great confidence. and I, I think the world is a sadder place. But you know what? A, and it's so cliche. It's a better place because people and men like Bob Orth exist. And I'm going to share one little thing that happened in that show of Grapes of Wrath. There was a scene where I went on and it was a particularly difficult passage as Al Jode, his one little thing that he had. <laughs> and Bob Orth came up to me and put his arm around me and he said, Toby. And this was like in the performance right before I was supposed to go do it. He's like, I want you to remember that you have within you the power to mess up this entire performance and then he patted me on the back and he walked away and like and he just flashed a big grin and i and like but the reason that he did that is because he was an empathetic person who knew that i was stressed and scared and knew that i it was difficult and the whole point of that was that as someone who cared he wanted to put ease on my mind and the last thing that i went on stage and thought about was a laugh mm. and i i just think that that's how he approaches life and truly I'm sad, and I am so not even in the same atmosphere as so many people who are impacted by Bob Orth. We're going to share on our website something that really encapsulates Bob Orth, which was a, a, a bio on his website that he wrote in addition to his standard operatic bio. He wrote, he wrote a dark biography that is just really, <laughs> let's call it realistic. I'm going to read about it. like two sentences yeah. from it because it's so hilarious. Um, and this is still up on his website, but it was his dark uh, biography. Robert Orth is the best baritone in his price range. A man of average looks <laughs> and more than adequate vocal skills, he has somehow made the difficult climb from Chicago Opera Theater to Opera Grand Rapids. It's often been said of, <laughs> it's often been said of him that he's clawed his way to the middle. A high baritone, he's been referred to as half man, half tenor. But it's Mr. Orth's abilities as an actor, not as a singer. That have put him in demand to sing Figaro in the Barber Seville in such cities as Syracuse, Toledo, Corning, and Wilmington. <laughs> let's uh, see, let's hear just a little bit of him performing uh, a little uh, a little piece from uh, Nixon China um, uh, as as Richard Nixon, um, uh, and just get a sense of who he was in his performance. Like the Ming tombs. I think this leap forward to light is the first step of all our youth, of all nations' youth. Our duty is to show them both their future and our past. The fire and the noon glare how they inspire our poor dry bones put us in mind of our forgotten dreams we send children on our crusades we bring children our countries right or wrong then we retire
Uh, he will be greatly missed. Robert Orth singing Nixon and China. All right, let's reach into my uh, fake bag here and pull out a letter. We have a le- letter in our listener mailbag from Lillian from Seattle. Uh, I'm going to read it off to you right now. New to opera, three years old. Think about Thinking about heading out to Chicago next year for The Ring. Should I? My intro to Wagner was the one Met HD presentation to Valkyrie last season. Loved it. Would be interested in your thoughts slash input. Thank you. And thank you, Lillian, for sending in a, a little question for us to, to bat around for you. What are, what are our hot takes, gentlemen? My hot, ta- my hot take has cooled off a little bit, but it's something that I <laughs> fiercely believe, which is that the Met HDs are great, but nothing can compare to the sonic experience of being there live and having Agreed. the sound actually surround you acoustically rather than being helped out by sound engineers. That is that is the answer. And yeah. and so And so if you have the ability and the means and the time, yes. And also I saw the the uh, the production of Valkyrie at Lyric and it was one of the more invigorating nights of theater that I've been to in a long time. Oh, absolutely. It, mm-hmm. that, it clocks in at something like 5 hours as you know having seen it and <laughs> I uh, it felt shorter to me than many other operas that I've seen recently. And the production of Siegfried was so good, uh, even Oliver admitted that it was good, which is which is he <laughs> never high praise. George and I saw Ryan Gold. So did we see them all? I've seen them all. Great. Get a Drum Room comes is is premiering next year. Right. And that that yeah. one has got a really killer. I mean, it's Each one has gotten cast. progressively better, so yeah. I think it would absolutely be worth coming yeah. down. Yeah, come on down. Let us know. Uh, maybe we'll uh, hang out with you in the audience a little bit, uh, get some selfies with the, with the whole crew here. Uh, and yeah, you should absolutely come on up to Chicago and, and see it. Uh, I know I'm going to be there. I'm currently like carving through my bank account and setting aside the money for it Like as we speak. <laughs> I've got my uh, banking app up here and just desperately figuring out how much ramen I have to eat over the next couple months <laughs> while I prepare. And it's a different production. It's called $20 Rush Tickets, it, my it, man. It's a different kind of... Pro- they do not have those for a full ring cycle. People are coming from Seattle. They're coming from Bayreuth. They're coming from Tokyo, probably. <laughs> probably. I mean, it's kind of like a weird... It, it, it's an interesting production. It's not... Yes, it's I would not, agree. The, it's not your most classic ring that you're ever going to see in your entire life, but it doesn't... It, it, does, it still is telling the story. It still is right. telling the story. Also, the singers... Absolutely. A phenomenal cast of singers. Eric Owens' Votan is amazing. I think that's a really important part of this, too, is that this isn't just a ring cycle being done somewhere. It is with the best singers in the world. Um, uh, Yeah, if you can do it, you got to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Come on up. We hope to see you there. We got to wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. That's right. It's time for good calls and bad calls. I've got a good call uh, rooting around in my mailbag here. I have a good call actually from listener Dale in Arizona. He says, have you any of you seen a production of the piece Considering Matthew Shepard or the TV documentary about the production? It's by Craig Hella Johnson and his group Consp- uh, Conspirare. Uh, they, uh, they're doing a tour of the piece, which will be at Ravinia on September 12th. And uh, I'm hoping to be there and hopefully we'll see uh, Dale from Arizona there too. That'd be great. Uh, and uh, yeah, who else has got a good call? Or bad call for me. I've got a good call sticking in the Ravinia lane. Uh, I'm going to be performing as part of the mass performance this weekend, uh, Saturday, oh. July 20th at 8 p.m. <laughs> Marin Alsop, a wonderful, wonderful conductor and musician conducting the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and joined by a chorus of uh, a cor- the Chicago Children's Choir, uh, older contractors, and me- uh, stars of opera and Broadway of all levels. Should be a lot of fun. I How have about a good you? call too. Uh, Keep sending us in questions. We will do entire segments that our listeners yeah. want us to do. We'll do anything. If you donate um, enough, we'll, we'll, we'll do anything. <laughs> Once again, operaboxscore.com slash donate. <laughs> Don't at Weston, everyone. <laughs> I mean, you can also just PayPal me directly, but you know that that's for other reasons. All right, that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR uh, is Henry Moscow, uh, joined by Samuel Sangvi. Our announcer is Norm Waldell at VoxerShorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from OperaBase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. 
the creative consultant for Opera Box Scores, Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright and Matt Cummings, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with all your millennial friends and the uh, <laughs> Twitter page for Vogue. We're back on Monday, July 22nd at 9 p.m. Central when our infamous pop quiz segment returns. Get your pencils ready for that. And also, George takes us to the Glyndebourne Festival in England. Get your top hats and fascinators ready for that, plus even more opera news, more hot takes, and more more in general. Join us then. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.